Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 453. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 453 you're listening to. My guest today is producer engineer Jason Kick, based out of Oakland, California. He mainly works out of Santo Recording, which is a studio that my former studio partner, Josh Roberts, who's also a former WCA guest, runs. And Jason is the chief engineer there. And he's worked with Mild High Club, Abracadabra, Sunny in the Sunsets, and many others. And I'll put a link to Santo Recording and a link directly to Jason in the show notes for you to check out. But we're going to do what we do. We're going to talk all about his journey in audio. And I look forward to you hearing that conversation. So Jason Kick coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about self-promotion. As audio professionals, we are working generally for entities, you know, musicians, movies, games, where those things are getting promoted. The, you know, obviously the movie's getting promoted, the record's getting promoted, the game's getting promoted. The question is, is should we be promoting our contributions to those things? And I'm just going to tell you right now, cut to the chase, I think it's up to you and how you feel. If you're comfortable, great. If you're not, great. Either way. I know that, you know, this is kind of a broad brushstroke and I know that it's not, you know, uniform across everything. But in general, my experience shows that those of you in England typically don't self-promote very much, if at all. You're very quiet about things. You're very, um, you don't, you don't push stuff out on social media to say, you know, hey, check me out. Uh, those of us in America, more often than not, we're more willing to do that. Now, I know there are exceptions, so it's, once again, don't send me an email and say, broad brushstroke you made there, Mr. Boudreaux. No, no, I, I get it. You know, it doesn't apply to everybody. But in general, my experience has been our English friends do not self-promote as much. It just doesn't seem to happen very much. And I, and also, I don't think you see it as much like with those who have already had some success. They just do the records and maybe one or two things come, come out about it. Yeah, when I do something that I'm proud of, that I'm excited by, I'm sure as shit gonna promote it. I'm sure as shit gonna talk about it and say, hey, look, I did this. Because that helps get other work at the end of the day. You know, people see that and go, oh, okay, you worked with so-and-so, great. Uh, maybe, you know, and maybe that name lends some credibility. So I'm gonna take advantage of it. And if you are not comfortable with that, totally cool. The other part of that is, is some of us don't promote because we're worried about getting pushback from our peers and, you know, and criticized. And I'll be honest with you, uh, I love my peers to death. I think they're great, but I sure as shit, I'm not going to base all of my career decisions on how they feel about promotion. I'm going to do what I think is right for me and what I'm comfortable with. And I would encourage you to do the same. If self-promotion is not your game, that's fine. But I'm okay with a little bit of that. Um, not for everything. Case in point, you know, recently I teamed up with former WCA guest Chris Dugan, and Chris and I did an Atmos mix. I did two Atmos mixes for Alanis Morissette. And did I promote it? You bet I did, because that's that's a that's kind of a, an important client. That's something that I think is worthy of putting out there to say, hey, check this out. And you know what? Even if it's some small indie band, I still think it's it's worth it to put it out there. I don't always do it, but Alanis Morissette, yeah, I'm going to do that. So we could go on and on about this, but it really boils down to your comfort level. And, you know, it may not be in your DNA to do that. And for some of us, it takes a little bit of a hump to get over to do that because we're, we want to, but we're also like, oh, what are my friends and my peers going to say? And I'm just like, yeah, I don't really care because those people aren't hiring me. It's the bands that are hiring me. 
And when they see that, they go, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, let's hire that guy. He worked with so-and-so. And it could be the same for you. So either way, whatever floats your boat, do what you think is right. Don't do it because of what other people think uh, positively or negatively of you. Do it because you feel comfortable and you're proud of a release, you know? If you worked on a great movie, hell, tell everybody about it. Worked on a great game, tell everybody about it. Same with records. And if you are gonna do it, I would show some gratitude to the people involved, you know, show a little humility. It's, it's kind of a, some people might call it a humble brag, but it's more like, I did this, I'm proud of it. Thank you to the people that got me involved. And that's that, you know? I got to give a shout out to Chris Dugan because Chris brought me in on this Alanis Morissette thing. And I don't, that wouldn't have happened without Chris. So definitely got to, you know, let people know that uh, we teamed up on it. So that is that. Do whatever you think is right for you and show some humility in the process and make sure you give credit where credit's due. And uh, definitely don't try to take all the credit yourself. I don't think that's the right thing to do. Anyway, that's it. Not much more to say about that. Do what you think is right for you. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Jason Kick here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Jason, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Northwest Indiana, right outside Chicago. Were you in school band at all? Or I was. I was in every band I could be in. What was your primary instrument? 
So I played, I started off playing percussion and concert band as a elementary school kid. And then I moved on to jazz band and basketball band. In basketball band? Because my school wasn't big enough to have a football team. So we had a basketball team. I played at the basketball games with the basketball band. <laughs> I played guitar. So we would do like tequila, or 25 or 6 to 4, that kind of stuff. Heart and soul, like who you Lewis and stuff. It was corny. But, but yeah, so I did all that stuff. But I, I mostly was in the school bands because we had access to a practice space that way. So I was a percussionist and then I was a guitarist in high school in the bands. So my garage band that I had in high school, we would practice, we would just like jam in the mornings and the lunch. I'm sure a lot of other people have this story. So that was like a huge benefit for being in the bands. You kind of did it for that reason. So I'd sneak out of gym class to go jam. Some people will gravitate towards a harmonic instrument like the guitar or, mm -hmm. or drums and Sounds like you got a little bit of both of not only just general music theory, but you also, not to say that percussionists don't know music theory. That's not what I'm saying. People. <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't always. I mean, I never really learned how to read music fluidly because percussionists, we would cheat. If they handed us a chart for a vibraphone piece or something or marimba, we would just write the notes out and then learn it. So I, I do think it's true. Like we could read rhythms, and then when I was in jazz band, you're, you're reading chord charts, right? So that's a little different. I did learn a major seventh, but I, I don't think I really knew how to play a major ninth. <laughs> so I'd probably just play a major seventh instead or something like that. L looking back, like I didn't really understand jazz. And then I actually kind of rejected music theory. And people ask me all the time, like, do you think I should know more theory? And I kind of rejected it for like 10 years. Mm. And then I just... In the last decade, I really got into it, actually. And I realized how learning music theory can actually help you work on music as a producer, engineer. It, it doesn't hurt to know it. No, no, not at all. I think it's super helpful. I think, and I don't know if you agree with me, but don't you think that you have a better concept of ideas that you, one can go with with a song? And if you don't know the music theory, then you're you're mimicking with your mouth, like, well, what if you did kind of a, you did mm -hmm. whatever the, you know, how drummers talk to each other, right? Right. You know, yeah. what if you yeah. did the boop, 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 you know? Yeah. I mean, and it could be the simplest thing. Like just this weekend, I was tracking a band and a drummer's doing like a kraut rock beat, but it felt like very stiff. He was doing like, like constantly with a kick pattern. And I felt like, what if we went to quarters on the hats? Like it would maybe loosen up and we'll put a shaker in there and that'll give it that, that 16th energy and maybe it'll sound a little looser. And I don't even know if we're going to go with that version, but it's that kind of be being able to even talk like that is something that, you know, you have to have a sense of what 16th notes are. Yeah. Or one thing that I notice a lot, like I've been recording a lot of bands in the last few years that love their major seven chords. And the thing with that chord is that if you have a bunch of people in a band playing it and you're not aware of the, the way that those voices are, the keyboard player and the guitar player might be creating some really nasty dissonance because the, the way that the note is the ninth, the major ninth is right before the octave. So if somebody's playing in different octaves, it can, it can sound a little weird. And if you hear that and you can actually identify that, then you can correct that little weird thing you don't like. So that's just like the smallest way in which it helps. Yeah, and I think you understanding that helps. I mean, I could speak in terms of quarter notes, eighth notes, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. And phrasing and, and percussive talk, but I don't know if I'd know a major seventh if it bit me in the ass, to be honest with oh, you. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. And I could say like 10 years ago, I definitely would not have been able to hear one and say that I know what that chord is. Yeah. And I think that's super normal. And I was, I was making records yeah. then too, and they still sounded pretty good. So yeah, I, you know, I don't know how important that is, but I also found out that some of that stuff is really easy to learn. And you could watch probably a few videos on YouTube. That's like how all the kids learn everything these days. Yeah. And hey, I'm a believer in YouTube tutorials. I've gotten a quick education on a lot of things that way. 
and also just being surrounded by lots of musicians that yeah. are super talented. I've been lucky to work with some really, really virtuistic people. Yeah. So uh, I've learned a lot that way. Of course, there's the Rick Rubin method where he doesn't <laughs> even play an instrument and you know it's not, it's not hurting his career. No, I mean, Rick Rubin is, yeah, he has an amazing situation like that. Well, back to your upbringing, when did you start to become aware of audio as something you were interested in or something that you recognized as a part of the process of record making? You know, that's a good question because I, I want to say that a lot of us say, I didn't even know that this was a job when I was a kid, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you don't think about it. I think the best way to answer this question is just to say that my entrance into the world of recording was from an experience where my high school rock band that I was the front man of, we went into record with the local studio guy. He just got Pro Tools and he was super excited about it. And that was back when some of the digital stuff didn't sound so hot. And we went in and recorded and we kind of wanted it to sound like this hip thing. And what we got back just didn't have the life that we wanted. It didn't have this like cool electric energy. And I got a four track, like, so we were demoing all the stuff in four tracks and like, we kind of thought that sounded cooler. And so from that point on, after we were kind of disappointed with the studio experience, I said, you know what, from now on, I'm recording everything. Hmm. And I got a Tascam 388 when they were 400 bucks in the mid aughts. And then I, at some point, started carting it around and taking it to other bands and recording them with it. So that's how I started. But that early bad studio experience, like what was bad about it? Could you break it down a little bit? Well, I think like, firstly, there's just the idea that we weren't going in to work with someone who understood what we wanted. And so I do think it's really important that you're on the same page aesthetically with whoever you work with in the studio. I mean, well, the word producer gets thrown around and we all know that doesn't mean really anything when you break it down. But he was very vocally like, I'm not a producer, I'm just an engineer. Just tell me what you want and I'll do it. But I don't think that he really understood what we were about. So there was like a generational aesthetic divide. So I think that was part of it. And also, I don't think we knew what we wanted. We, we had never done an experience like that. So we probably didn't communicate that well. Looking back on it, I could say, like, I didn't know how to communicate what I needed then either. I didn't realize that, like, if my guitar needed to sound cool, like, I probably should be choosing a guitar pedal. I don't even know if I was using guitar pedals. I don't know. It was like one of those things where I just really didn't know anything. But all I knew is that I liked what I was doing at home more even though it was like raw and imperfect, it definitely it had a vibe. We weren't getting a vibe. So here you are toting around a Tascam 388. And for the listener, if you don't know what a 388 is, imagine a four-track Porta Studio from Tascam, very small, but blow it up, make it reel-to-reel, -reel, <laughs> eight tracks, built-in mixer, built-in tape machine, all in one unit. They're all over Reverb, all over eBay, and they're super cool. But hauling that thing around wow yeah what a pain in the ass i know well it was a badge of honor and it, you know <laughs> i was like 20 years old so i felt pretty cool showing up i would like say like oh you know i was living in my own apartment and i would go oh, my parents have a piano so i'll take that thing to my parents house and i'd show up with this thing and they're like what the hell <laughs> it was like 80 pounds i mean i don't know you have to have someone help you move it every time you go anywhere and it's probably not good for the machine to be honest but Looking back, yeah, I didn't think twice about it. Oh, yeah. You know, Bouncing I'd go around. jam with somebody and I'd, yeah, I'd just be like, I'll bring the 388, you know, drive over an hour to another town. Yeah. And it was a, kind of a cool thing. Radio Shack was doing clearance on all their quarter inch reel to reels. So I was buying tapes for like three bucks a pop. This is a super like 2004 story. But, wow. Uh, so I just, I brand new tape. So that's, I was recording on Radio Shack tapes. And do you still have a lot of those recordings? I have all of them, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't have a 388 anymore, though. I sold that thing. <laughs> I actually sold it and then regretted it, bought it again, and sold it again. I know we weren't <laughs> going to talk about gear, but this is more like, this is like your buddy. Yeah, yeah. 
And then the second time I sold it, I made a lot of money the second time, but then now they're going for like two grand. So it's kind of insane. It is insane. I don't understand it. And the thing is like, I would rather, honestly, I don't know why anyone would want one in, in this age where everything sounds so good. Yeah. Tell me about what did you graduate to sonically? Like, where did you go to? Did you create a studio or did you, like, what was the next step in your life post 388? That's interesting. So I was living in San Francisco and in, in the Mission District and playing in a band and like kind of in this whole scene of a bunch of bands in the like mid, late aughts. And once I got a DAW, which I believe the first one was Adobe Audition on a PC. I never really had any interest in computers until I realized you could do so much with it with music. So some friends liked some things that I was doing on my own. I was sharing like CDRs with people that I had made. And they were saying, oh, I love the way you make these tracks. Like we're going to Expressions Music College, which is like a local Bay Area college. And they said, we're gonna get some free recording time. Would you mix this for us? And so I started mixing people's free Expressions Music College sessions in my bedroom on a, I don't even think I had real studio monitors then. I think it was on like one of those boombox systems. That's how I started. And then at some point, I guess the turning point for me after I had actually done a few things like that, a friend of mine got wind that I was making records kind of on my own between my 388 and, and doing these home mixing sessions. And he said, hey, if you ever want to bring people into my studio, basically his studio needed business. And I was well connected at that time, friends with a lot of bands. So he was basically saying like, if you bring some people in, you can produce it and I'll show you how to use the studio. And that was this guy named Sean Biggs who had the studio called Studio Paradiso. And it was in downtown San Francisco on 4th and Mission. He showed me how to use Pro Tools. And basically, I learned how to record people in a studio there. And I used to assist him on some day trotter sessions. Day trotter, if people don't know, is they were like a, a very popular music blog that would do live sessions of bands. And they sounded really great. Okay. Kind of like peel, peel sessions, and they were in Iowa oh. or, or something like that. And they came out to Noise Pop every year, and I would assist on these sessions, and we would get like three hours with a band, and they would just do like four songs. And we'd have to set up super quick and record it, and they always wanted to go to, straight to tape. That was like a day trotter thing. So the, the people that ran that blog, they would once a year get record some bands in San Francisco. And that's how I learned... I would say between that and just bringing some of my friends in, that's how I learned how to record in a studio. So fill in this gap for me, coming from where you grew up to San Francisco, how did you come out to San Francisco? Were you playing in bands on a regular basis? Actually, I was in college. It was expensive and I, I came to California. I thought if I became a resident and then I, I got enrolled in college, I was a writing major. And actually one of my biggest regrets is not studying more music because I ended up doing that anyway. But yeah, I came to California for collegiate reasons, so to speak. But I also really just hated Chicago winters. I was going <laughs> to college in Chicago and I just really hated it. And I came to visit San Francisco within 2004, I think. And it was just, I just loved it here. And I just wanted to be here. I really felt like I needed to change where I was. So it just felt like the right place. I guess I thought that maybe there was a cool scene here. Like my favorite band in the whole world at the time, and still one of my favorite groups is this band Deerhoof. Oh, yeah. And they were like a big thing for me. And I knew that they were here. So I was like, well. <laughs> Gotta go know, there. If they're doing something there, then I, maybe that's somewhere I need to be. I think there was a couple other acts I was into, like Numbers, Eraserata, the Coach Whips, that was John Dwyer's previous. Yeah, that's so funny. Eraserata, Bianca Sparta, the drummer, bought my very first drum set. Oh, really? And cool. unfortunately, it got stolen, but so it's out there somewhere. But yeah, uh, yeah Eraserata was great. Oh, they were so good. Really enjoyed them. 
that was my stuff when I was like 19 years old. And I'll share one other Eraserata thing. Before they were Eraserata, Bianca and I think two of the members of Eraserata used to be an early band called Mathematician, if I'm oh, correct. Really? Huh. And, and I had recorded them in San Francisco at one time. Oh, Somewhere cool. I've got I've got those recordings. Very interesting and really kind of a I don't know if anybody would agree with me that they're a precursor to what Eraserata became, but yeah, very interesting. I love those. I love the the band before they were the band. Yeah. There's this band that a lot of people listening might know called Grass Widow. And Hannah Lou from that band also has a project now called Cold Beat. And one of my first endeavors was recording their band before that called Shitstorm. Mm. And two of the members of that band were in that. A lot of people are fans of this later group. But yeah, nobody knows who Shitstorm is. But <laughs> <laughs> but I recorded them before they became the band that became famous. <laughs> so how long did you spend at Studio Paradiso? And what were your takeaways from that experience? Well, wow. There were so many takeaways. I mean, one of the things that I'm so grateful for. I need to shout out to Sean Biggs because I haven't talked to him in a while. And he was at that time, basically my mentor, especially with Pro Tools. And I use it every day and I have for 12 years or something. So thank you, Sean, for making me use all the shortcuts. He was like, so on top of me, he wouldn't let me use the drop down menu and that kind of stuff. And it seems so silly now, but it really helps. So he was kind of tough, and I think that that was great for me. Let's see, what, what were some of my other takeaways? One thing is that I never got the exact drum sound I, I wanted in that studio. Even though it's a gorgeous studio with a lot of gear, the drum sound wasn't quite right for me. It took me quite a few studios before I found a spot where I was like, yes, this is where I can get the drum sound I want. And now I can say there's a few that I've been that I think that I can get that sound. But I floated around a lot and there was definitely a certain point in my career where I was working out of three or four different places. I still see myself as freelance, but right now you're interviewing me at Santo Recording in Oakland. I know it well. Yes, you know it well. And I know you know Josh Roberts, who is one of the geniuses behind creating it and a wonderful person. I'll put a link in the show notes to my interview with Josh Roberts, who I have a great history with. Yes. And that'll be the next episode I listen to. Yeah. I've actually made a lot of records at Santo, and I plan on making a lot more, but I'm making it more of a, a permanent resonance now. I'm much more involved in the studio as of two months ago. Let's talk about survival a bit. We both know it's, as I've hammered on my listeners over and over again. It's no secret that the Bay Area is a very expensive place to live. Mm -hmm. How have you managed to survive <laughs> all these years? Have you taken side gigs to make ends meet? And can you talk a little bit about that? That's a huge part of my history is like, what else did I do for money? Because I don't know anybody who just starts making records and then boom, I got a full-time job. <laughs> Doesn't happen. I don't know a single person that did that. I was doing live sound. And mm. live sound paid my bills for many years, probably about 10 years. I started off in this little club called The Knockout, which is still very, very alive and awesome. And I love all the people over there still. It's still my clubhouse. I love going back there just to hang out. So I did live sound forever. And I will say to a lot of people that might have reservations about live sound, and they want to be in the studio all the time. I mean, I really do think those two situations kind of help each other out. You learn a lot about recording by doing live sound, I feel. Absolutely. I mean, you, you get really fast. I felt like I could pull a mix together at a dingy nightclub. I was working with a Mackie mixer, and I, was, I didn't do a sound check, and I felt like I had a pretty good mix going, like, 45 seconds into their set you know what i mean mm -hmm. and so it's like that's a good skill like when you track a band and they do a few takes and they run up and you've already got it sounding sick that's great you want to be fast and you want to make quick mix decisions i mean really life sounds great for that and also socially you'd be out you're meeting bands if you really like somebody 
the biggest record I recorded was because I walked up to the band afterwards and said, I love what you're doing. I work in a studio. I want to record you. And I know a lot of people that have that story too. So yeah, that's what I did. Yeah. Did you ever do any non-audio based side gigs? Yes. I did work at Radio Shack for a while. Oh, you're my hero. (laughs) When I was in college. (laughs) Yeah. I did work at Radio Shack, which even that, I learned a lot from that. (laughs) Yeah. Signal flow, how to connect things. Yeah. A lot of that job is explaining to people how to like the signal flow of their home entertainment system. Got to know that. So that was a big one. And I I was actually a stagehand when I was young at a theater. And I've taken some calls with IATSE. Mm. I'm a overhire for IATSE. I love that union. So I do take some stagehand work, but almost at this point, it's that's even exclusively audio. I never take any gigs that aren't audio with them. And it's only when they when they really need people. Currently, you primarily work out of, out of Santo in Oakland. Mm-hmm. What is your assessment of the current climate of bands and artists you work with do you do you feel like as a recording professional is it difficult to bring bands in to get them to spend the money to record or are you finding that the bands are financially challenged in any way it really just it's so situational i work with a lot of solo artists that may have a moniker but they're essentially just one person and in a situation like that you have to consider the fact that just one person paying. And I do tell people, you know, I try to have a sliding scale and think about like, what can this person afford to do? And what can I afford to do? Because you can only do so much. So you try to find something that works. And I found sometimes working with solo people over time that don't have a label budget, you can do a half day once a week or every other week for a few months. And then you can start to really get some stuff. And also I can coach people and like recording themselves. So, so what's funny, I guess, is that when we talk about bands, I would say maybe like one out of three or one out of four clients that I take actually are the traditional band where everybody's a democratic member and that sort of thing. And I love doing that. And uh, Santo is a great place to record the band band. But it's funny how much things have changed in that sense. I feel like it's less and less that there's there's a real band to even record. But yeah, I, I think that I've always gravitated towards models where it's affordable. I've always worked at places where the room rate isn't super crazy. And it's funny, I've gone down to LA a lot in the last couple of years to work on records and I'm amazed at how much prices can vary for a studio. And so I do think that I tend to be like very frugally minded. So I usually try to figure out a situation where I'll present a budget to someone and say, look, we can do it for this much and we can spend this much time. And I think if we're smart about it, we'll pull it off and it'll, it'll be affordable. So sometimes I do that work myself just to get the project with the person I want to work with. Or somebody approaches me and say, how much is it going to be? And it's like, I have to come up with a number. And that's really hard. It's really hard to put a number, especially when they want a flat rate. Labels always want a flat rate. And it's like impossible because it's like, well, is this record going to take me 50 hours? Or is it going to take me 150 hours? Because I've done both. Do you prefer to work hourly or daily when it comes to a rate? Right now, I prefer hourly. But that throws people off sometimes. I don't know why. But to me, it's the fairest thing you can do. And it also kind of opens up, if you have a situation where you can use a studio, you don't have to book this huge block and do a day rate. It's kind of nice to do. But, you know, during the pandemic, I had to do a lot of project rate stuff. Nobody's really watching you. They're not with you every hour over your shoulder when you're mixing and stuff. But it feels like when they're in the room with you, they know that you're working that whole time. And so hourly just feels right to me. So... I generally choose that when I can. Like I said, sometimes like a label will say, this has got to be five grand. We got to do this in five grand. And it's like, okay, well, I could probably do that in a hundred hours or it'll have to be less depending on the studio because you're going to need money for that too. It's that kind of thing. 
Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Do you feel there's a huge difference in studio pricing? between Los Angeles and San Francisco? Yeah, it's weird. I feel like the one thing that's more expensive in LA is the studios. I will say that. And even for what you get, I think that San Francisco actually has some great studios, a lot of value for the cost. Yeah. And maybe I have to think that it's because there's so much major label money down there and there's a lot of Hollywood action in these places. So I just think that they're accustomed to having these clients. And I, I think there's a lot of, there's just so many studios down there that when they, when they get something, they have to take advantage of it. Yeah. You know, and maybe it's just a demand thing. I mean, there's definitely more of a, of a musical ecosystem happening in Los Angeles than there is in San Francisco, at least in my opinion, based on the years I've been here. There's definitely more, there's definitely a bigger business yeah. happening overall. That's indisputable. There's more money just going everywhere and that's indisputable we've actually lost a lot of bands to los angeles i'd say in the last 10 years just paying attention to the scene but there's always new bands there's always new kids that come up i'm, I'm discovering brand new bands i love all the time so you you do a lot of work out of studios do you maintain any kind of home studio or portable rig that allows you to stay flexible like pro tools on a laptop or anything like that yeah yeah well my Pro Tools on my laptop is not really, I need a new laptop for sure. But yeah, I can, I can definitely, if I want to drive down to someone's house and still record them in their, in their room, you know, I can bring a nice mic and a pop filter and find a quiet room and still get a good take that'll go on the record. Like I'm so flexible with that stuff. I don't have any qualms about that. And then I also have a basement spot in downtown Oakland that is just a one room studio i do some mixing and you know i've got just like a simple avalon preamp compressor eq channel it's kind of like a one channel studio there's an additional preamp and it's really simple and i do a lot of vocals and mixing and stuff there so yes i you know i have another spot and i do have a room in my apartment that is dedicated for music too but i don't use it very often you're the chief engineer at Santo. Is that is that correct? That is currently true, yes. Yeah. Well, at least that's what I recall from the website. Right, right. Okay, you, you did your homework. Yes. So, yeah. That is my position as of today, yes. So, I mean, you're the kind of the first call person. Is that Would that be accurate? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. And actually, another friend of mine, his name's Simi, and if anyone sends an email and wants to book the studio, they'll probably be talking to him. He's doing a lot of the calendar stuff. But I'm kind of in charge of making sure the studio is, is like 100% at all times. Yeah. Which graciously has been, that duty has been handed to me from Josh Roberts, who it's his studio, basically. How do you find 
work? And what do you think is the best way for you to find that work? I have to say that work finds me at this point. I feel lucky just saying that, but I don't look very hard for it. If I looked really hard for it, I could probably get some crazy gigs, but I feel like I'm always too busy working to look for it. But yeah, I, I feel like I've been word of mouth for the last few years so much. I had one record that did really well, and then there was a whole scene that kind of surrounded that, and people hit me up, and I, I just stayed busy. And I feel like at this point, I've got people, I've, I'm on their third record with them. Yeah. I'm lucky to say that. The only detriment to being successful in that way is that sometimes you kind of stay in one place and you kind of record a lot of the same kind of bands or a lot of the same kind of artists. But luckily, I like that style that whatever I'm, if people pigeonhole me or assume a, a certain aesthetic about me, I actually don't mind it because I like all the music that comes out of it. So it works for me. But yeah, I'm not lazy about promoting myself, but I really do rely on word of mouth. I haven't really ever advertised or anything like that. Luckily, at Santo, we're, we're, we're doing a little bit more to try to be visible on social media and that kind of stuff because it is so important. It's just the way the world is now. Yeah. Do you bother with a website or, or not? I am working on that. <laughs> you are, working you're, on you're, that. Working, you're currently working on a new I'm website? currently working on that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's in the works. TBD. Coming soon. Coming soon. Who has it? Yeah. I hope to have something up before the end of the year, for sure. There's a square space and it's under construction. <laughs> Do you foresee yourself doing more work in LA as time goes along? And would there be a reason for you to leave the Bay Area? <sighs> Man, that is a huge question. I, I hope not. I want to stay. My heart is here. Yeah, for sure. But is there a reality there that is pulling you from the Bay Area because there's considerably more work? Or is that is that true? There is a lot of work, but there's a lot more competition. I think, especially in the music world, it's just a bigger pond. And I do think generally that there's a lot of talent and music in the Bay. And that could be enough to sustain a career. It's been enough to sustain me to make ends meet for me, yeah. at least. The scene, it's been 90% San Francisco bands. And I've been lucky to have people drive up from other places sometimes even to make records with me, which is super cool. Yeah. And then I find myself driving down and I flew to Miami last year. So sometimes it makes more sense, me as one person when it's a whole band, it makes more sense for me to travel. And I love working in different places. It's, it's super fun to be in a new studio. Oh yeah. My plan was always just to go to LA when needed <laughs> and that's it. And that may still be the case. I can't say for sure, but have I thought about it a lot? Yes. And have I gone down and looked at neighborhoods to think, well, if I did have to live here, where would I live? Yeah, I've done that. Yeah. So I've gotten super close to doing it, but the Bay always, there's something about it that always keeps me here. What about Nashville? Is that a possibility for you? I mean, yeah, they have some beautiful studios there. I'm not a country guy, that's for sure. I'm not an Americana guy that much. I grew up in Indiana, and my parents love the Eagles. <laughs> I grew up hearing a lot of country rock and stuff. So I don't know. I don't think Nashville's for me. No. Right. I have to say that. I'll say no to that. Well, I will say that Nashville is not not just country these days. There's a lot of rock music happens in, in oh, Nashville. Oh, yeah? That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I believe it. They've got the, they've got really nice studios there. <laughs> I probably should be more hip to it. I know that Shannon Shaw made an amazing record in Nashville. Yeah. That's a local musician. Jack White lives there. Sheryl Crow lives there. Oh, yeah. I thought he was a Memphis guy. Some of the members of Motley Crue live there. Yeah. Ah, okay. Let me ask you this. I'm under the impression that you spend like many of us, spend a hell of a lot of time in studios. Do you have other interests and or do you do any kind of physical exercise to keep from becoming part of the chair? Oh my God. I really should more. It's such a hazard. It's such an occupational hazard for us. It's so hard to get exercise. I definitely need to do that. 
<laughs> so no, no, I haven't, I haven't done that. You know, the only thing playing music, like just playing in a band, you, you sweat a lot. For me, like I've always played in bands where it's super physical and that I realized was like a huge exercise for me. So I guess that would be the most physical thing that I've done. And I haven't done that enough the last two years. So so you're saying playing in bands, is that's your exercise? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I think it has been. I'll go on hikes with my girlfriend too on Saturdays. That but, counts. But she'll say that not enough and not enough lately. So I can't say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm guilty. Is there anything that you focus on or pay attention to, read, listen to, or are aware of that keeps you inspired, not just in the studio, but just in life. Things that, something that you are inspired by that you could share with the listeners, whether it's a philosophy or a person you follow, anything that you seek and get inspiration from. Outside of music, which I mean, I'm really obsessed with music all the time. And like, I'm the kind of person that like reads music books exclusively and things. But I'm a big David Lynch fan. And I never got into meditation, but he's really into transcendental meditation. And this idea of kind of like quieting yourself and then just looking for the answers, I find really inspiring. I get a lot of inspiration out of watching Twin Peaks or his other films because I just feel like he's giving us a surreal experience that we can't lock down and define, which I think is kind of what, what I love about music is that it doesn't have to be about something. To me, to say like, oh, this David Lynch movie is about something is kind of like, you're sort of putting that on it, but no one can really say, I know what Mulholland Drive is about. And that's what I love about music is that it's kind of different for everyone. And that's what I love in art in general. I love the mystery of art. And I think music to me, the reason I always come back to it is because it just feels so malleable. It can be just anything I want it to be. It can be a, a great memory. It can be, it can give me an idea for something I want to do in the future. There's just so much life in it and it's so open. So that just is one of the first things that came to my mind. I am a David Lynch fan myself. And if you ever have the opportunity on the, the Masterclass platform. Oh, you know, I never did watch that. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, Masterclass, in my opinion, is one of the most affordable, jam-packed values for your money out there. Mm -hmm. I'm also very influenced by watching directors on there. Spike Lee, David Lynch, oh, yeah. Warner Herzog. The David Lynch one, I think you'd really get a, a lot of inspiration from. Just yeah, listening sure to him talk about stuff. Yeah, He has a great documentary called The Art Life. And he basically giving his wisdom on being an artist in general. And one of his best pieces of advice is like, if you want to make art, you should have a life where you have as much time to make art as possible, whatever that requires for you. Mm -hmm. And I think he's kind of acknowledging the fact that not everybody's going to make money directly from making art. So whatever you got to do to pay the bills, either live cheap, give yourself time or find a job where you make a lot of money quick and then you got more time. But that felt like a very great advice for anyone who wants to have a creative profession is just to make sure you have a lot of time to do it. Because I do think that's one of our greatest things. Is it safe to say that studio life dominates your, your world versus being a player? <sighs> well, I play on a lot of the records that I work on, uh -huh. which is why I like working with solo artists so much because if I get to be the bass player, that's like a bonus for me. Or if I get to play guitar. And in one case, a band I recorded, I'm going to go play guitar with them in Europe later this year. And I played on the record. So that was easy. But I'm not the guitarist of the band generally or haven't been. So yeah, there's a lot of cross-pollination there. But I, I will say that of course, I wish I had more time to work on my stuff. As a songwriter, I wish I had more time to finish my songs. I have songs that I've been working on for eight years, but I only get, I probably only sat down with them three times a year, every other year for the last decade. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's sometimes that go, that comes really slow. And I have to say, I know a lot of people in my position that kind of have that same problem. What do you find to be challenging about studio life? My biggest pet peeve is when people in a band, this is just like a universal thing. I just noticed it recently, playing for no reason. I don't care if it's band practice or the show or if we're recording. It's just like, quit just noodling, man. We're trying to talk. We're trying to figure it out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's like a thing. I, I just don't know how musicians don't know to just be like focused and like play when you need to. But sometimes you have this session and it's just like, you, you're like, okay, I'm ready. And then we're rolling. And then like two minutes later, the band finally kicks it into gear. And I never understand what's happening over there for two minutes. That's just like a general gripe. <laughs> Do you ever find that you see the, the promise of music with a, a group of people that, you know, they've come to the studio, they're there to record. You've heard the, a bit of the music and you're thinking, wow, this could be really good. But the band itself is not disciplined enough or focused on what they're doing or t not taking it very seriously. I've definitely had that. And, you know, honestly, like I would say twice in my career, probably making of 50 to 60 LPs or EPs or whatever, I would say twice the band almost seemed completely out to lunch. Like they almost didn't care if it got finished. And in both cases, they had a label budget, which is just really insulting to me <laughs> that someone else is paying for it. And then they just, they're kind of spoiled brats about it. So I hate that. Yeah, I would much rather somebody be like obsessed. And I think some people get bent out of shape when somebody's really like uptight or really focused and saying like, this is what I want, this is what I need. But I love being around that energy because I feel like if someone has a vision I will listen to that vision. I don't need to bring my vision in. It's There's something about pulling along a bunch of people that aren't super into what they're making that just feels like wrong. And that's interesting you say that because I wonder if the bands or the solo artists that are paying out of pocket are far more focused because money is more scarce. Yeah. And the examples you name, the bands had label money. So it's like, it's not their money. Well, I mean, it is their money in the long run, but in the short sure. term, they don't recognize that sometimes. I love working with indie clients because they have those limitations and they're like, okay, this is the budget and we got to get this done and this is what I want. And I find that much easier to work with than yeah. people who have just no direction. It's so true. And sometimes, sometimes the label artist they might even be more budget. Like if they're trying to make a full-time living as a musician, that's hard. And they sometimes seem to have less money than the people who have like a great day job. I know some people with great day jobs, they haven't like broken into a huge market with their music, but they make great music and they love music. And I love working with those people and they may never be famous, but I love working with them because I don't care about any of that. Yeah. And so, yeah, I totally, I hear you. There's something about the urgency. Everybody has a different philosophy. I've gravitated towards flexible studio situations where the studio isn't super expensive because I'm convinced that to make a great record, you do need some time. And I even like to stretch the process of making a record over a couple months as opposed to trying to do, I think the old school thing was like, you block out a studio and you do two weeks or three weeks or whatever you can afford. And you just stay there and you do the whole th damn thing. And there's a lot of amazing records that were made like that. But for me, I like taking a step back away and listening to it in my car for a few days and thinking about some other stuff and coming back to it like a week later yeah, or two weeks later and being like, well, do I still love this? And I hear things differently. So for me, I, I like having those gaps and I have like having the time. And uh, sometimes people spend a lot less money when they take a little time to figure out what they want, because people waste a lot of money trying to do it all in the studio. So that's another thing. It's another way to help people kind of get it done. It's just like, you know, you go home, you figure out what you want, you come to me, we'll get the thing done that you're sure you want. I don't know if it's like this for you, but to me, there has to be this happy medium. Like, I have a really hard time with people who 
can't see when something's good and they, they overdo it and they keep like, they record it over and over again and then they lose the spirit. But at the same time, I've worked with some people that they can't see that it's not good enough. So it's kind of like there's some people who take it like too far and like break it. And then there's mm-hmm. some people that I've worked with where they just do one or two takes and they're like, okay, that's good enough. And I'm like, oh yeah, I need that happy medium to make certain that it's quality and it's inspiring. Yeah. And, it's and really it, surprising. It's, it's hard to find that sometimes. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause there are some people that like, they kind of demand to do way more takes than possible. Or it just seems like, wow, do we really need to do this 40 times? You know, I mean, it's, I've definitely been there. And the other thing is sometimes you just have to kind of demonstrate your technical prowess. I mean, if you're like me, it's like, I don't always melodyne everybody's voice, and but I can, and I will. <laughs> I'll comp things that, and I'll take out breaths and I'll do all kinds of black magic if, if I need to, right? But I really don't want to. And sometimes if it's like, hey, let's do two more takes and really get it, you're just getting warmed up. Yeah, I'll push people if I can tell that they can do more and they're not doing it. But then there's also that point when you have somebody do four or five runs of a vocal and then you try to make it easy for them if you're like, okay, you're just not, this chorus isn't coming together. Let's focus on that. We can loop that. So I feel like part of doing this job right is like just saying, here's a process tweak that we can do to get the right performance from you. And then if we try that and it's still not getting it, you know, there's definitely a tipping point where you're like, okay, this is all that this person can do to get this level that I'm, I want for the recording to work. And then you have to decide how much do I want to alter reality to get this to happen. But yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting when people give up early. That's kind of a weird, that just feels wrong, right? Yeah. I really do believe that idea that a record's never finished, a mix is never finished. Like you could work on any song forever. And there is something about it that feels right to just say, you know what? We're never going to be completely satisfied or know that everything's perfect. But, you know, we just have to essentially say, this is it. This is what happened. And we have to walk away and say, like, we did a good job here because we did. If you feel like you have to take a step back and say, okay, no need to push it anymore. But it does feel like very human to say, oh, you have that feeling of like, I know I could do better, but we'll do better next record or something. But it's weird when people think, oh, that's good enough. And then I'm like, do you listen to music right. every day? Have you, you know? heard yourself? <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. We all hear music differently. And, you know, yeah, it is weird. What you're talking about is anomalous for me, but it is very strange when it occurs. If, if you had to pick one task to do in the world of recording, whether it was being a producer, being an engineer, and if you're an engineer, are you, do you prefer tracking or mixing? What task is your favorite? I mean, I definitely prefer tracking to mixing just for my personal enjoyment. Yeah, tracking is so much fun. Part of it's just that you get to be the coach with the performers. And it's like going out and you're seeing people perform and then you're, you're kind of like saying like, what if we do this? And you, you see people adjust their performance. So that's like a huge thing. And then you're getting the sounds for the very first time and you still have all this potential ahead of you, right? And then when you're mixing, it's like a whole different scene where everyone's on the couch behind you. <laughs> you're just kind of sweating a little and you never take your eyes off the screen and you get the carpal tunnel. <laughs> neck pain. <laughs> I don't know. It's just way, I mean, it's way harder. But that said, I think I'm good at mixing. I, I do think people come to me to mix and I love to mix records that people record somewhere else or that they do themselves. So I do love mixing, but <clears throat> for me, tracking, easy, easy answer. So much fun. Okay. Yeah. And I'm, I'm at a point in my life where I absolutely love mixing and really? and I'm yeah. just tired of being there to track. Like if I can avoid it, I will. I'll farm it out to somebody else and say, hey, why don't you go do the bass overdubs with this yeah. engineer and I'll stay here and be ready to take the tracks. Yeah. Into- well, you know, you're right. Like, okay, so maybe this is just mostly a, like I, I missed out on a lot of tracking and during the pandemic, I was just mixing. So I feel like so burnt. 
on mixing and, and getting people's tracks. But at the same time, you're right. There's a lot of, a lot of strange tedium to tracking, waiting for people to go to the bathroom, come back, tune up, chat with each other, argue about which bridge they're going to do. Yeah. It's very tedious. There's something really nice about just being presented with, especially if the whole job you have is just to mix it. Like we love everything. We've edited it. This is perfect. This is the best we can do. Here you go. Yeah. And then you were just working with someone's best. They're all out of the way. And if it's, especially if you're on your own, man, that is a good gig. It's a good gig. Well, and I will say, I applaud you for still having the patience to have people sit behind you when you mix, because I just don't do it. Like, <laughs> you don't do it as no, a policy. No. no, as a policy, I say, nope, I'm going to do the first round and I'll bring you in if you need to at some point, or we'll do a remote mixing thing. Yeah. You know, I have mixed feelings because I tell people I like to spend some time with the track on my own, uh -huh. but I've been in enough situations where I get pretty creative with certain things and then I will present it to them. And then they're like, well, we were thinking something totally different. And it's like, well, how many hours did I spend alone doing this thing? Right. So I guess it just depends on like what the gig is, but there's been a lot of situations where I think I kind of feed off people's energy and when they get excited, then I like, it pushes me. So yeah. I guess for me, sometimes mixing can be, I get energy from the, from the artist. Oh yeah. I totally understand that. I think I'm in a situation where I don't have a studio that I have to book and that can change the dynamic, which as you know, I mean, if you're paying for the studio and they're paying for you and the studio, right, that can be an economic challenge. And sometimes it's most efficient, I think, to have them right there to go, okay, go out and hang out for an hour or two and I'll, and I'll call you in when I'm ready. Right. Yeah. No, it's, that's cool. And I would say for most people, like you don't need to book fantasy studios to mix your record probably. So hopefully people aren't spending too much on the room to do their mix. Cause yeah. Again, well, and I unfortunately think, fantasy's gone. So, right. That's but why I, I, but I know what you the, mean. I didn't want to single anyone out that still exists. Right, right, right. Yeah. But, you, don't, you don't always need to do that. Right. I always find it difficult when people are sitting there because I feel like they need to be entertained and then they can easily derail. Like if you're soloing something, you're like, let me see what's going on with the snare drum, you know, see how much kick drums in the snare drum mic. And they're, well, what are you doing? Oh, what's that? Or, oh, you really going to put that much reverb on there? It's like, no, dude, I'm just like testing the waters, doing exploratory <laughs> research. And I think that's one of the reasons that drove me away from, oh, yeah, from the group mixing dynamic yeah yeah that makes sense yeah it's like a classic thing when you first if you try to put a reverb on an insert and like when you first turn it on it's always a hundred percent yeah and so <laughs> everyone immediately is like that's too much it's yeah, like yeah. i know just hold on a second well so if people want to find out more about you where can they find you i would say exclusively through santo recording so you can send us an email at santo recording at gmail All right. and ask for me and we'll book some time for you that would be what i would say That'd be ideal. And also, if they just want to check you out, they could just go to Santo's website, which I'll put a link in the show notes. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah. And if they want to know my resume and stuff, it's all there. Yeah. Well, and I also clicked on a few of the links of the stuff that you mixed that is linked to Bandcamp pages and really enjoyed what I heard. Oh, cool. Yeah. And there's one in particular that Al Harper, that record. Oh, I love working with, with yeah, Alexis. That's, that's, I just, I really was listening to that and enjoying it. So, Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, yeah well done. Yeah, no. Well done. One of my favorite all-time people to work with in the studio. So much fun. She has a new record coming out that you're going to love. If you like this last one, you're really going to like the one we just... It just got mastered by Matthew Barnhart in Chicago. Oh, great. Yeah, it sounded super good. And I'm so excited for people to hear it. At some point, if you want, since we're both in the Bay Area, if you want to go have a coffee, let's go do it. Hey, Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a coffee person for sure. I'm like, I'm like Dale Cooper, man, with coffee. You are talking to a coffee fan. So <laughs> cool. we will, we will find common ground there. No pun intended. <laughs> All right, man. Well, Hey, great to chat with you. Thanks so much for making time for me and, and being on the show. And uh, I look forward to our coffee. Awesome, man. It's been a blast. All right. Will you take care? 
Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Jason Kick here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. You know, I know I've been telling you to go and leave a five-star review at your podcast aggregator, but this time I'm going to ask you to tell your friends. Do you have an audio friend who works in one of the different audio disciplines that you think would like this show? If you do, tell them about it. Yeah, just spread the word. Let's let's continue to let the Working Class Audio podcast grow in its size and, and listenership and uh, bring everybody in the community together here, if we can. All right, that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo in the editing, Cliff Truesdale in the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magic voice of Chuck Smith at the top of the show. You know my drill. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. If you haven't done that, go do that. And you can always send me an email if you have something to say. Matt at WorkingClassAudio.com. would love to hear from you. Until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.